0: Scripture reading comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and was so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The grass withers and the flowers fade, But the word of our God endures forever.
1: My name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Exilic. And despite having grown up in the church my entire life, uh, the churches that I grew up in, we never celebrated Advent. And so I never knew what Advent was from a church perspective. Uh, but the word in and of itself, as you all know, simply means the coming or arrival of something. And so the advent of the new iPhone 11 or the advent of winter, the word advent simply means the coming or arrival of something. And from a church calendar perspective, uh, advent is the four Sundays prior to Christmas to help us prepare for Christmas. And today marks the second Sunday of Advent. And I really do believe that uh, observing Advent is more important than ever simply because Christmas happens earlier than ever before. And in our culture, Christmas is oftentimes inundated with a lot of good things, ugly sweaters, gift exchanges, traveling, potluck. It's inundated and flooded with a lot of good things. But oftentimes, these good things can sidetrack us from the main thing the main point of what Christmas is all about. And so for today, uh, as we take a look at Matthew chapter 2, what I want us to do is not to place ourselves in the shoes of the Magi, but what I want to do today is to place ourselves in the shoes of an insecure megalomaniac and a merciless murderer named King Herod. And what I would like to show us is that as we place ourselves in the shoes of King Herod, that within every single one of us, there is a miniature King Herod, which is why we all need the Christmas story. And so first, I want to begin with a very quick biography of uh, who King Herod is, uh, this very polarizing figure. And I say polarizing because Herod is responsible for some of the greatest pieces of architecture uh, that we have To this day, Uh, the palace, his palace in Masada, uh, the Temple Mount. Uh, We even have his marble bathtub to this day. But not only do we have a lot of tangible physical evidence that King Herod was this real figure that made significant contributions to uh, the city of Jerusalem, but we also have a lot of literary evidence for the life of King Herod as well, from the Roman historian. Uh, plenty the elder to the Jewish historian, Josephus, who is probably the greatest chronicler of Herod's life, who wrote two books about the life of King Herod, there is a copious amount of evidence uh, for the life of King Herod. Um, and Matthew chapter 2, as we take a look at today, takes place during the reign of King Herod. And one of the reasons why I want to give you this sort of uh, historical architectural backdrop on the life of King Herod is to show you that the Bible does not take place in Mordor or Middle Earth or Arundel or Oz or Hogwarts, nor does it have fairies and wizards and hobbits, but the Bible takes place in a real historical setting with real historical people. If Any of you have ever read ancient myths before? Ancient myths never contain real historical settings with real historical people. Modern myths might. Ancient myths never did. And yet when we take a look at the scriptures, we have real historical settings, real historical people, even our Apostles' Creed. Who do we say uh, uh, crucified and killed? Jesus, Pontius Pilate who was the governor of Judea at this time, and whom we still have artifacts and evidence for to this day. All this to say that our faith isn't rooted in fiction or myth, uh, but is very much rooted uh, in history. And so we know based upon outside sources and what the Bible says uh, that King Herod was a real person, and he was oftentimes labeled as the king of the Jews, even though the Jewish community didn't really fully embrace Herod. And the reason why they never embraced Herod was because he himself was not a Jew. He was appointed by the Roman government to be king of the Jews, and his main job was to collect taxes from the Jewish people to maintain a steady revenue stream for the Roman Empire. And so in many ways, King Herod was a puppet. King Herod had 10 wives, and so what that meant is that he had a ton of kids. Each of those kids wanted to be the next king of uh, Judea. Some of them even wanted to be king before their father even died. Uh, Three of them in particular were murdered by Herod himself uh, because he was suspicious of treason and mutiny. He murdered his favorite wife. He murdered his uncle. He murdered his brother-in-law. He murdered his cousins on uh, on his dying deathbed one of his last wishes to his sister was that she would, uh, it was for her to fill an entire stadium with prominent Jewish leaders and to assassinate all of them to ensure that on the day King Herod died, the entire city of Jerusalem would be mourning instead of rejoicing for his heavy, ta- uh, heavy taxation. And so, all this to say, Herod was a merciless merciless man and one of his most merciless acts is found right here in Matthew chapter two. So read with me again verses one to three. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now here's a question Why was King Herod disturbed by the birth of this baby? And secondly, why was all of Jerusalem equally disturbed? Well, why don't we begin with the second part? Why was the entire city of Jerusalem disturbed by the birth of a baby? Well, one of the reasons why the city was disturbed was because King Herod was disturbed. The city was troubled because King Herod was troubled. Herod was the kind of person that acted on his delusions, even if it meant killing his own Children. Caesar Augustus at the time was rumored to have been uh, rumored to say that it is better to be one of King Herod's pigs than one of his own children because it's safer to be an animal in Herod's farm than a child in his own palace. And we see evidence of that with the infanticide that's about to take place in Matthew chapter 2. And so the entire city were, was afraid of the ramifications of this moody king. Now, here's the second thing. Why was King Herod disturbed by the birth of this child? Well, imagine for a moment you are the CEO of a very successful company. And then all of a sudden your board says that they want to bring on a new CEO. How do you think you would feel? You'd probably feel very threatened. You'd probably be afraid that you were going to lose all of your power and your authority. And similarly, it was with Herod he felt threatened by the birth of this potential new king, and therefore he was willing to sacrifice anything to maintain his throne, even if it meant killing this baby. And in what is notoriously known as the uh, massacre of the innocents, uh, we read in verse 16, the final verse, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned uh, from the Magi. So here's a question. What does this merciless tyrant have anything to do with us? Well, just as the Christmas story or the birth of Jesus was a threat uh, to King Herod, What I would like to say is that the Christmas story and the coming of Jesus is equally a threat to all of us. Now, we might not be the king and ruler of a geopolitical kingdom, but what I would like to suggest is that all of us believe that we are the king, master, lord, and ruler over our own lives, the kingdom of me or the kingdom of self. None of us likes the idea of someone else telling us what to do, we don't like the idea of someone having power and authority uh, over us because at that point they can tell us how to live and what to do. And so, when, when it's only when we sit on the throne that we can fully control uh, our own lives and do uh, as we wish. Uh, Jonathan Sharks, who is a writer for The Ringer, and who recently became a Christian about a few years ago, despite never having grown up in the church and despite thinking that he would never ever become a Christian. Uh, writes something uh, for the Gospel Coalition on the first page of her bulletin that I think highlights how modern people uh, think of uh, what it means to be the master and ruler over our own lives. This is what Shark says. Our culture places a huge emphasis on independence. No one can tell us what to do or what to think. We determine the course of our lives. And Anthony Kennedy, the recently retired Supreme Court Justice, summed it up in one of his most famous opinions, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of the meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. And so the modern definition of freedom, then, is the ability to do whatever we want, as long as we're being true to ourselves and we're not harming anyone. And I think a good cultural example of this comes from my daughter's favorite movie, Frozen. And despite having seen this movie a dozen times, uh, I did not know how indoctrinated I was being by this movie until I heard uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, make a critique on the most popular song in the movie, Let It Go. And I was specifically asked not to sing this song, so I'm not going to do it. But there is a line from the song, uh, that you might be familiar with, uh, and in the in the movie, Elsa uh, sings the famous song "Let It Go," and there's a line in the song where she says, "It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free." And Elsa here does a good job of capturing how modern people view freedom. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. This is the only way that I can be free. So the modern definition of freedom then is the absence of constraints, the absence of rules, because any form of limitation or boundary in my life uh, um, makes me restrained. Uh, uh, It doesn't enable me to make the choices uh, that I would like to make. And the uh, prolific writer uh, for the New York Times, David Brooks, does a a good job of capturing how we as modern people make decisions in lieu of our modern conception of freedom. Let me read what he writes in his book, The Road to Character. And Brooks says, if you were born at any time over the last 60 years, you were probably born into what the philosopher Charles Taylor has called the culture of authenticity. This mindset is based on the romantic idea that each of us has a golden figure in the core of our self. There is an innately good true self which can be trusted, consulted, and gotten in touch with. Your personal feelings are the best guide for what is right and wrong. In this ethos, the self is to be trusted, not doubted. Your desires are like inner oracles for what is right and true. You know you are doing the right thing when you feel good inside. The valid rules of life are those you make or accept for yourself and that feel right to you. It is important to stay true to that pure inner voice. As Taylor puts it, there is a certain way of being that is my way. I am called to live my life in this way and not in of anyone else's. If I am not, I miss the point of my life. I miss what being human is for me. Moral authority is no longer found in some external objective good, It is found in each person's unique original self. Greater emphasis is put on personal feelings as a guide to what is right and wrong. I know I am doing right because I feel harmonious inside. Something is going wrong on the other hand when I feel my autonomy is being threatened, when I feel I am not being true uh, to myself. And this is, to be honest with you, the problem with religion and the existence of God for a lot of modern people today. Because if there is a God, and if He is really the, you know, the creator of the universe and the king over the whole world and the king over our lives, you know what that means? It means that you're not. And if God is the one that really sits on the throne, it means that there is nothing He cannot ask of you. It means that there are times where we need to make changes in our life because we ourselves are not the master and ruler of it. And so whether it's reconciling with a family member or a friend that you've been ignoring this whole time because you don't want any conflict, you kind of have to do it. Uh, Whether it's uh, a relationship that you shouldn't be in, you kind of have to do it. Uh, If it's your sexual ethics, your living situation, how you spend your money, you kind of have to do it. Because what that means is you're not the king and ruler of your own life. Uh, Someone else is. You can't live any way you want anymore. And that's a threat to every single one of us. What I find so interesting about Herod is that he is the kind of king that actually took the Bible seriously. There is a sense in which he respected the Bible. And yet, even though he took the Bible seriously, he was not willing to conform his life to the pattern and shape of Scripture. How do we know that? Take a look with me at verses 4 through 6. When he finds out that a king is to be born, what is the first thing that he does? He calls all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they tell him that something is written by some kind of prophet, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And what is Herod's response? That's just a myth or a fairy tale. Who believes in that hocus pocus nowadays? He doesn't do that. He actually takes the Bible very seriously, so seriously, in fact, that he tells him to go, uh, the Magi, to go to Bethlehem so that he can go and worship him uh, there as well. He doesn't dismiss the claims of the Bible, but he actually takes it seriously. And Herod's posture is a powerful illustration of how someone can respect the Bible and yet not conform their life to the Bible. And similarly, I can't help but feel like in my own life, and perhaps in yours, you might respect the Bible and even take it seriously, but are you willing to conform your life to the patterns of the Bible? Are you willing to submit under it instead of you being over it? Oftentimes we say that Jesus is the Lord of our life, but until you allow Jesus to totally upend your life, disturb your life, cause a mess in your life, inconvenience your life. Until you are willing to allow Jesus to do that, he is not really the Lord of your life. He might be Lord over certain convenient areas of your life, but he does not have domain over every area of your life. The apologist Ravi Zacharias uh, once said that the truth is really not what people are looking for. What people are really looking for is autonomy masquerading itself as reason. And so the the way that we live as modern people is this, this is how I feel like I wanna live, and I'm gonna find justifications for how to live that way. First comes how we feel like we wanna live, second comes justification, but we have the order completely reversed. From a biblical perspective, the first thing that we should look for is a justification for who we are, a child of God, a sinner saved by grace. And then secondly, this is how we live in light of that justification. We have the order completely reversed. So what kind of freedom then does Jesus offer that our modern culture's definition of freedom does not? Look with me finally at verses 13 to 15. Now, why would the angel tell Joseph to take his family, Jesus and Mary, and go to Egypt? Two answers. The first is obviously to flee from Herod. Uh, Egypt was 80 miles south of Jerusalem, and if they got to Egypt, they would be outside the jurisdiction of Herod, and therefore they would be safe. So the angel tells them to leave for protection. But there's a second reason why, a more important reason, why the angel tells Joseph in a dream to take his family to Egypt. And the second reason is to fulfill what was said through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you've read the Bible before, whenever you hear the word Egypt, the thing that you probably associate with Egypt is when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And what Matthew, the writer, is doing here is that he is trying to show that Jesus is reenacting and reliving the Israelite story. So let me give us a very quick view of Matthew's gospel in two minutes. Matthew chapter 1 is the only gospel that begins with a genealogy. The word genealogy has the same root word as the word Genesis. And the word Genesis simply means beginning. And so when Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, what is he trying to say? There's a new beginning that's about to happen with the birth of of this child. When you think back to the story of Exodus, Jesus is not just the new Genesis, but he's also the new Exodus. When you think about the story of the Exodus, what's happening contextually? The Israelites are going vast and wide and multiplying in number, so much so that Herod feels threatened by all of the Israelites. And so what does he do? What does he do as a result of feeling threatened? He orders an infanticide of all the, all the Jewish baby boys. And on that day, there is a lot of blood that is spilt, but there is one boy that is saved, Moses. And Moses would eventually go on to be the liberator and deliverer of his people. What do we have in Matthew 2? A king that feels threatened, and so what does he do? He orders an infanticide, except there is one child that is saved, Jesus who is a Moses 2.0, who will save and deliver his people from their sins. When Moses grows up and he helps deliver the people out of Egypt, one of the first things that they do is that they cross through the waters of the Red Sea where they go from death to life. What happens in Matthew chapter 3? Jesus gets baptized. And what is baptism a symbol of, as we just saw? A symbol of going from death to life. What happens after the Israelites cross through the waters of the Red Sea? They wander in the wilderness for 40 years with no food and where they are tempted and they fall into temptation. What happens after Jesus' baptism? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days without food and where he is tempted, Except, unlike Israel, Jesus does not fall under temptation. What happens when Israel enters the Promised Land? They form 12 tribes. What happens with Jesus as He starts His ministry? He makes 12 disciples. All this to say what Jesus is doing here is He is reenacting the Israelite story. And what He's ultimately saying is this, I am the better Moses. I am the new Israel. And I have come to deliver you from a greater oppression than the Egyptians. I have come to deliver you from your sins and the tyranny of death. And that is where real freedom is found. Let me tell you how this works. Uh, If you haven't heard the gospel story before, imagine for a moment there is a piece of paper. And at the top of this piece of paper is your name. Underneath your name is a record, an accurate record, of all the stupid things you've ever done in your life. The gossiping, uh, the hate, uh, lustful thoughts at the gym, uh, coveting something that someone else has, uh, being envious, being discontent, the list goes on and on and on. For your entire life, how long do you think this would be? 10 pages? of your whole life? 100 pages, depending on the font size? How long do you think this would be? Perhaps books. Now I want you to imagine another piece of paper. And at the top of this is Jesus' name. Except underneath his name, it is completely blank. And what happens magically on the cross is that Jesus takes your name and he erases it. And in your place, he writes his name. And underneath Jesus' name, he erases it, and he writes your name. So it is as though Jesus lived your life, your imperfect, flawed, messed up life, and it is as though you lived his life. And now underneath your name, he writes, always loves, is always patient, is always content, is always kind, is always compassionate, is always forgiving. And that is what happens on the cross. You know what real freedom is? Freedom is the ability to say, I am messed up, jacked up, screwed up. I am completely broken. But you know what? I have a new perfect spiritual resume because of Jesus. You know, in our culture, what we have to do is, especially in social media, we have to present our best foot forward. We have to look good without actually being good. But in the gospel, once you become a Christian, the best thing that you can do is actually put your worst foot forward because at that point, you're recognizing your need for grace and your need for salvation. So let me close with one final story. There was once a fish named Nemo and Nemo watched Little Mermaid. And in Little Mermaid, Ariel sings, I wanna be where the people are. And Nemo thinks, me too. I don't want to be in this stinking little fishbowl anymore. I want freedom. I don't want these constraints or these boundaries or these parameters anymore. I want to be where the people are. I want to walk on land. And so one day Nemo has had enough. And so he rams into the fishbowl and all of a sudden the water's splashing everywhere. He rams into the fishbowl again and now the fishbowl is wobbling. He rams into the fishbowl and finally the fishbowl falls to the ground. The water spills out and so does he. Except instead of finding freedom, what he is now experiencing is a slow, slow death. Freedom is not the absence of constraints the way that our modern culture views it. Freedom is the Is the presence of the right ones. And we have something called the Bible that we believe is God's word. And chaining ourselves to this Bible and to a cross and following Jesus as he took up his own cross. You know what? That is freedom. There is a door called happiness that we all want to walk through. Most of us don't realize that the key to unlocking this door is in the shape of a cross. It is not doing whatever you want. And in Christianity, you find this freedom. The ability to say, I'm nothing, I'm messed up, but thank God I am saved by grace because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray.